Hey all, Michael Saramella here, and welcome back to the STAB Podcast channel. Today you're going to listen to something a little different from our typical weekly news segment on The Drop. Every Thursday over the next six weeks, we're going to publish a long-form interview-style podcast from different surfing regions to support our new No Contest series, which is produced in conjunction with Red Bull and available to watch for free on Red Bull TV. Ashton Goggins will lead these discussions with surfers and tastemakers from around the globe, including places like Fiji, Italy, Costa Rica, and beyond. The first episode focuses on the unique and occasionally frigid New York surf scene with locals like Balaram Stack, Chris Gentile, Joni Capetta, Diane Cardwell, Mike Nelson, and Dave Wan sharing their experiences of growing and surfing in America's financial epicenter. For our Stab Podcast regulars, do not fret. We'll still be publishing our normal episodes of The Drop every Friday to discuss weekly surf news and competition with Buck, Stace, and myself. But for now, it's over to Ashton. Enjoy! So it's, they didn't even forecast it really snowing yet, and it's starting to come down. And apparently we're getting maybe a foot to a foot and a half overnight, and we're going to wake up to just a blanketed beach of snow and hopefully fucking firing waves. Hello, and welcome to the No Contest Off Tour Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to the new Stab and Red Bull Media House series. We give you an expanded look at the places and characters that make up each episode. I'm Tyler Brewer from the Swell Season Surf Podcast, and we are here with the director and show host of the No Contest series, Ashton Goggins. Thanks for having me, Tyler. I'm excited to talk about the new show. Stoked to have you here. Ashton, where are we going on this episode? We're already here. <laughs> We're already here. The first episode of this series was shot in New York City and Long Island, to be fair. So before we dive into this location, let's discuss, like, how is this series different than the past No Contest? It's quite a departure in the sense that you're not following the WSL tour around anymore. How is this different? So... Over the seven years that No Contest was embedded with the World Tour, it sort of evolved from a short sort of web-based behind-the-scenes series into a more sort of serious journalistic like travel show, taking you behind the scenes at each location and trying to tell the story of the sort of local figures and characters that make each community what it is on the World Tour. And we did that for more or less three years as full-length films, 20-minute episodes. And at a certain point, we'd squeeze the juice out of most of the locations (laughs) or felt like we'd done enough service to each of them to move on to the myriad other international locations that have really rich surf culture and really interesting characters. So basically, you get to be surfing's Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. I'm a little jealous. I'm just going to say that out loud. <laughs> it's It was a weird thing that just happened all of a sudden being thrust on tour. It was like a two-week warning before we started doing this, and it's now been four years of traveling. And it's been like the greatest joy of my life being able to do these series because a lot of times when you go to a location to film a surf film, it's you flying in with famous pro surfers, filming at the different waves, and then leaving. And the real story is the experience that those surfers have with the locals that are their guides and the people who've built and carry the local surf culture on their backs. And those are always the stories that were my favorite to tell 
when we were on tour. And so given the opportunity to just look at the sort of dizzying array of places that you could choose, we've narrowed them down into categories and to and whittled it down to a list of locations that we thought were really diverse that showed the spectrum of what is available today as far as international surf communities and destinations. So there was no dartboard and a map on a wall then? No, I wish. <laughs> it was, but it is definitely like one of those moments that you like, you imagine your teenage self fantasizing about. You're like, imagine if they just said, pick six places that you could go. Pick your surfers and figure it out. And that's a little bit what it felt like. So yeah, it felt trying to put together something between an Anthony Bourdain show and a Bruce Brown film. And I don't know if we've accomplished that, but those are the two like stars that we were steering by. So let's just get into it now. This episode is featured and focused solely on New York surfing, correct? Yeah, the first episode is about New York, which is a place that's very near and dear to my heart. When I first moved here 15 years ago as a kid going to college, you were one of the first guys that I met. And the New York surf scene, in a weird way, is fairly responsible for pretty much any good thing that's happened to me ever since, as far as the surf industry goes. It all stems from this little place. Yet we flew from Hawaii straight into a snowstorm with Balaram (laughs) and spent four days driving about a thousand miles chasing waves in this area. And um, listeners, there's only about 111 miles of coastline in New York. Let's just <laughs> let's just be put that out there. So you uh, do the math. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if people will call us out for where we surf. But to me, that was always what was so amazing about being a New York surfer is being centralized within striking distance of so many amazing waves and still 40 or 50 minutes from New York City. And to experience that with Balaram, like the full four-day like cannonball run, I've never seen anyone willing to work harder under harder conditions with an absolutely like unbreakable spirit than Balaram. He is one of the gnarliest, fucking grittiest surfers that I've ever been around. And watching him like in his element in a blizzard for three days like cracking the whip on Tosh Tudor and all these kids that were with him that were just like little puppy dogs trying to keep up, just like hammering them. What the fuck are you doing? You're two hours behind. You're going to miss it. Why do you even try? And I love that East Coast spirit because those were my favorite surfers growing up were like guys like Corey Lopez who they chased waves. All they wanted to do was go get barreled and they knew how to read forecasts Like they could read forecasts in between the lines to know where it was going to be good. And in the three days that we got to surf with ball, we scored the best East Coast that I've ever seen. Like why New York? What was it that 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 put it on your radar? Or obviously you mentioned you'd spent time here, but what made it uh, appealing to show as part of this series? New York surfing to me feels like its own almost unique category in a lot of ways, when it comes to the types of surf communities that exist around the world. I feel like New York is unlike anywhere else on the planet. And it's not just because it's the biggest city that's located on a coast that has waves in my mind. I think it's more about the types of people that it attracts and then the way that those types of people that New York attracts interact with the locals who are born and raised here. What makes this place great is the acceptance of that cross-pollination and the ability for New York to morph and absorb all this influence and create something that's completely different. I remember when I first came here 15 years ago, 
16 years ago as a college kid, feeling like what made it special was the people that came through and interacted with the locals, seeing, meeting all the heads from up here that had been a part of New York surfing since the 70s and 80s, and then seeing the treatment that those guys gave to the traveling surfers that were coming through to engage with New York surfing. It was like a blueprint for me for how surfing can become this like international network of brains and creative people and, and how a community can benefit from visitors instead of it being a closed off localized scene. It always felt like to me, the most inclusive environment for someone coming through. Everyone wanted to tell you where to go to eat. They wanted to tell you where they were going to surf in the morning, where to get a slice of pizza. Like who's, who's the guy that's been there forever. It was like, everyone was so quick to share that cultural capital here that for me as a filmmaker, knowing all those characters and knowing the lattice work that makes New York surfing so intricate and complicated and cool. It was like so exciting for them to green light it and for us to be able to dive in and start piecing together who the characters were going to be that we could help tell the story. Cause you could go, you could make a film every week about New York surfing with new characters and yeah. never ever finish it. I think like, the thing about New York that's interesting and unique is the fact that it's such a transient place, particularly New York City. People come to New York, they put in their time, they come here for a different reason. Most people don't come to New York to be surfers. They come here for whatever passion they're here for, whether it's in finance or whether it's art, music, whatever, a dance, like they're here for some other reason. And the surf just happens to be part of that, something that they can do to help relax. But I've always noticed, for me, as a born and bred New York surfer, the surfing goes through these phases here where there's a crew and familiar faces. And then in five years, a lot of those people either move or go somewhere else. And there's a new crew that comes in. And so New York has always been adaptable like that. It, New York has always had that story of, you know, you could come here and start over. And New York does that really well. There's always this regeneration going on in New York. And so I think it lends itself to being a pretty, ex I don't want to say accessible, but it's a more accepting surf community than many other places where you have more hardened, entrenched locals, basically. Yeah. And I felt like I was, I felt like we were able to really bring voices from all of those different sort of people into yeah. this episode from Mike Nelson and Dave Wan at Unsound, who, to my mind, have probably been the most influential two guys on the, like, core surf scene yeah. since the 90s when they opened. And thinking about how prestigious for a kid growing up in the East Coast the Unsound Pro was, and then seeing what they were able to do with the Quicksilver Pro in 2010? 11. 11, 2011. Yeah. Seeing what they were able to do with the Quicksilver Pro in 2011, to me, those were like such huge cultural milestones in surfing. But I do think that with the internet's like sort of memory loss that happens, that it's very quick for people to forget that. And it was fun to go back and hear the story from Dave and Mike about how that came about. And then to see Mike's new photo book, oh, uh, man. North of Nowhere, which when I was talking to him about it, I was like, finally, because I don't think the same thing. I know that this has been a chip on his shoulder since he was young as a photographer, that people have this generalization that the East Coast doesn't get that good of waves or that the East Coast is somehow inferior to the West Coast when it comes to wave quality. And 
that is the greatest hoax that you guys have ever played <laughs> on the surf scene. I'm confident of it. I'm confident that it is the greatest smoke bomb in the history of surfing that everyone pretends like New York and New Jersey isn't one of the best places to live as a surfer if you have good wetsuits, which yeah. we can get into. Well, let's dive into the conversation that you had with Dave and Mike. Uh, they discussed their role in New York surfing and how they started Unsound Surf Shop, helped to nurture Balaram, and the history of the Quicksilver Pro. It, it's a really great conversation. I had the surf shop for 25 years now, we're going into. Yeah, something 25 like years, something <laughs> like that. And uh, yeah, it's been running, working alongside this guy for 20, yeah, three, four, five years, somewhere around there. We grew up together as yeah. kids. We've known each other since we were like nine years old. Yeah, so. so we, so basically, for my my point of view, my side of it is basically, uh, so I started surfing. One of my friends started surfing, went to California for the summer, found surfing, came back. He's like, everybody's got to surf. So for that summer, everybody surfed, and then they all quit. So then kind of the only other person in my town that yeah, surfed right. was him. Yeah, I li he lived on the other side of town, and I lived yeah. by where the kid that surfed. So, so then just we kind of like hooked up and then just started surfing every day, this and that. Uh, and that happened for like a long time. Then he eventually got a job at the other surf shop. And then he kind of saw, at least from my understanding of it, kind of saw that the writing on the wall, you know, they were, they were a brief but bright existence, I guess you would say. And he's like, yo, they're like not so good, so let's open a store. I'm like, all right, you know, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, so do it. So then when we opened a store. Uh, and so what year was that? 90, we incorporated 97, opened in 98. Uh, and when did you guys start doing the contest? Right away, like yeah. one, like a year eight after months, nine 99, months. 99, I think, was the first year. Really? Yeah. And was that kind of part of it? Like when you guys were thinking about the shop, you totally. guys always knew you guys totally. wanted to Totally. Like our focus yeah. was always like, let's give kids opportunities that we didn't have as much. Because we had a good background of people like in ESA. We, they were always like super nice people, but uh, there was no shop connected to that. Yeah. And we understood we were traveling a lot, going to California and surfing stuff, and a lot of that. Always they, knew you guys totally. Were like our focus yeah. was always like, let's give kids opportunities that we didn't have as much. I think yeah. it opened. We thought there was like five thousand surfers in the whole Long Island, you know. So you have to be like a good store to draw everybody in. We can do that and grow slowly, you know, but still like stay core at the same time. We always thought like, let's make a video. Let's make sure we have a contest every year. Let's give an opportunity like make Long Beach the spot to come to, you know? People listening to this might think that he's like saying all that for like, oh, we should do all this because we'll sell more stuff and this and that. That, no, was, that just... was completely not true. <laughs> we were like, we should do all this because this is what we want to do. Yeah. Period. Yeah. That's it. We just want to hang out. We want to surf. We wanted good surfers to come to town. What's the only way to get good surfers to bring yeah. in Long Beach, New York, back then anyway? Like, yeah. give them money. So let's have a contest and get them in here. And that's kind of how it evolved. That's why this place became like this... Yeah like pseudo factory babysitting like <laughs> place for years I, I feel i would feel lost if i had to open a shop today and like because because it's just different i think kids have yeah. more yeah. avenues and outlets and phones yeah. and this and that where back then it was kind of like you know the kicked them out the door and then where'd they go they came here when we first opened we were like super nice to anybody we like you have to be yeah. extremely nice to anybody calls about the ways because when we were kids, if they were mean to us at the other shops, we're like, screw that shop. When we first opened it, Surfline was a fax. So yeah. like one of the reasons we called it on sound is because we used to go away when we were kids. And every time we go to California, they'd be like, oh, there's no waves. It's Long Island Sound over there. And we're like, we always get picked on. 
So we wanted to find a name that fit that. So it's unsound. Yeah. It's not Long Island Sound. Yeah. The meaning of the word is like if you have a business and it's not, it's like an unsound business. So we kind of, we had no business schooling at all, nothing at all. Just I worked at a store and he worked at a pharmacy. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, we're just like really into surfing and, you know, we both had, did customer service already, so it yeah. kind of helps a little too. Barely. Yeah, barely, but <laughs> a little bit. Um, and then, how did Balaram come about? Give us the give us your take on Balaram. <laughs> well, Bal Bal came around from his mom moved up from Florida, and his his brother Red surfed pretty good. And we already had the store, and uh, maybe we had surfed with Red a few times over here, and uh, on Lincoln. But Point Lookout was like the spot. And then one day, I remember we were up there. It was me and Salerno and like a couple of like the super local guys, and uh, Bal's b other brother Skanda had come up and checked the waves, and I remember he just he's never you know it's like and this is like the local spot. I remember my friend Mike was like, "Who the hell is this guy?" And I remember him staring at him, and he was like, "Who?" Like totally was like, "Who? What are you looking at?" And then as he was like ready to like kill him, Bal Bal and his mom came walking up, and. Uh, everything stopped and then later on Bao like a week later Bao's mom came in the shop because she was very into surfing mm -hmm. and Red already had surfed and Skanda were surfing already and this was the surf shop to come to so they decided to come say what's up and then she was like who's that guy picking on my son and we're like oh that was Mike it's all over we figured out everybody knows Red because we already had surfed with Red and he was a good surfer so we accepted Red yeah. right away so then we we're like alright they're cool they're nice people they're from Florida the brother rips you know, they're cool. You won't hold that against them. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but they were from, they were from near where Slater, well, they told us, Red was at least like, oh, I live by Surf and Slater all the time. Yeah, they live right by... Uh, yeah, so Smash. we thought he was like super yeah. cool right away. They from Bureau or something like yeah. that. Somewhere. And she was really, she was awesome. You know, obviously very supportive of surfing and she won, you know, all her kids to surf. So she was coming to the yeah, surf shop to get stuff. Mary immediately like that? Because I feel like she's like one of the few like real maternal characters. She's in super nice. Like right she away. Yeah. Day one. She's been the same. She hasn't yeah. changed. As soon as we went surfing with Paul at the same time or his brothers, she was there with like hot chocolate when we got out of the water. You know, she knew how to make friends right away. Yeah. And we were like accepting of it. And she had to like, you know, like right away when she trusted us, she, she you know, like uh, she had a tough working schedule. So she would drop Paul off. Here, then he'd go surf, come back, surf, and come back. But he was always welcome to come whenever he wanted. So that's how we came like super close with Bal. Does that have to feel like one of the biggest like feathers in your cap, like having a kid like that be like raised in your shop? Totally, because we were like, he got it, you know, like right away. He asked our advice. He'd like, like his mom was like, should I let him go to Hawaii? And we're like, well, if he wanted to become a pro server, that's the only way it can happen. You know, he's lucky. He was fortunate enough to know, like, a lot of good people. He was, you know, Keckley was with yeah. Quicksilver. He probably still is. Yeah. But it, we were like, all right, if it's through Keckley, it's going to be okay, you know? Like, it, was, it was nice that, I mean, the way I feel, it was nice that, like, we had a little bit of input in him. And I don't want to take any credit for anything the kids have done. The kids take like, yeah, yeah. whatever. But it, with his family situation, his dad not being around, we found a lot over the years that Paul and his mom were in here kind of, like, asking our guidance in through surf industry things you know yeah what should we do with this what should we do with that what do you think about this what do you think about that and uh yeah i don't know i guess we gave a couple of good things of advice because look at the kid the kid's insane well there's not yeah. many surfers that still want to put their like childhood surf shop on their board yeah. you know what i mean yeah. like find yeah. me yeah yeah i mean i have like he like all that stuff like 
to be perfectly honest, I have zero recollection of that kid until one day at Point Lookout, like he's saying, like the kid came out and surfed and like, yo, he was like this big and like I was bored. I have a picture of him from the first day I've ever seen him. Duct tape around the front oh, of his right. board, yeah, yeah, yeah. holding on the nose. Brown is hell cannibal from, you know. Yeah, that's why I the cannibal from yeah, here. Kid, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kid's just out there floating around. I have no, no idea until he takes off. Takes off on a wave and not that big, but it's like this big, but it's like, you know, like two foot overhead on him because he's so little. Drops in, full on square off the bottom, goes right up into it, and like is gonna hit it, and like like the fins like completely falls, but like just you could just see the mechanics, like wave one, boom, right off it, right up into it, and he did that pretty much over and over that session, like just trying but falling, but mm -hmm. you could see like the waves around here are very like long and mushy, and everyone kind of if you don't have any instruction like over the years, you you fall into this trap where you kind of like run out onto yeah. the face, and you got to get yourself back to the power. He wasn't doing that. He was like literally like Slater like, coming back into the freaking section, like waiting for going the doing it right. Yeah. So that I saw him and I'm like, like all of a sudden I'm like, yeah. yeah, from like, and I don't think he had, there was like, he was eight. It was the first step. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it was like, it was crazy. So yeah. then from right then I was like, all right, so that's a kid I got to keep my eye on. Yeah. And, then, and, red and then he started hanging red out red here. Too. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Red totally. surfs, his brother surfs yeah. extremely well. Yeah. He too, some sick turns. Be like, wow, look at that guy. Damn, that thing's sick. Doing a Slater turn, you know? The, like, Slater blowtail thing? Yeah, he was the one that was, you Super know, stylish, too. Yeah. So I definitely, I'll definitely get some of it. But we also were surfing Point Lookout, which is a harder wave to surf. It's super fast and hollow. Yeah. And Bob's like a little shore pounding. And if you wanted to surf with us, that's it's where you had to surf. Tiny pipe. That's all yeah. we surf. Now it's, like, exactly, it's, like, it's, you know, two-foot, one-foot pipe. Like, it's, like, literally that kind of, it was that kind of wave. Uh, I do feel like people have this, like, weird thing where they're like oh i can't believe you can surf heavy waves you grew up on the east coast but they're tiny fast like quick reaction quick yeah. shore break like yeah. what could yeah. prepare you quick more round waves you have to stand up fast thousand yeah. times yeah. a session yeah. Yeah. you know what i mean and you watch ballroom and that's where he gets he can fall under the lip yeah. better than anybody yeah. Corey lopez same thing like yeah. so you grew up in shore break mm -hmm. yeah uh when did uh how did the ballroom wild card come about for the contest what was quicksilver yeah. Oh, they were, he was already up on the Quicksilver scale. Like, oh, if we're doing New York, this Balaam's going to be our guy for yeah. this event. You he know? was, like, I think a no-brainer for them. For sure. Yeah, you know, to get that. He was already getting, like, Brisnick. Was that how you say it? Jamie? Brisnick. Yep. He uh, already had done a big story about Balaam, like, two years. That was in, what was that, New Yorker magazine? Yeah. yeah. Prince of Long Beach or something. So, like, he already had, like... Oh, did Jamie write that? I think Bill Finnegan wrote that. Yeah, he, had a, he had a lot of, like media around him yeah, already New Yorker profile yeah and a lot of media are already trying to like talk to him so Quicksilver yeah. was like wow this kid's got a you know he has a lot of attention why not have him as our New York star and he fit the profile perfect you know he's, he's from here it was very like supportive of Quicksilver to not want to make sure that the yeah. local was definitely the a good big marketing thing. play for them yeah. too to have oh, a local involved totally a young sure. kid from New York it was uh, to me that was like one of the highlights of that contest was that he got that and then he got attention for it, you know, yeah. when that profile came up. And I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, I remember being I'm so mad at him, going, what are you doing? You're going out tonight? And, but he's got, like, every kid, like, 50 of his yeah. friends around. It's his birthday. I'm like, I want you to be asleep by 1130. I remember talking, <laughs> to, not them, talking to them when we were doing the trials. We got to, like, select a few people uh, to add into the trials, whatever, the 16 or 20 people. Yeah, yeah. And we're like... You know, trying to figure out who we're going to put in. I'm like, look, we got to put in this guy and this guy. Like, people that came to our contest over the years and did really well, Asher Nolan and whatever. And then they were kind of like, as we were talking to them, and they, like, they had some heavy hitters in that thing. And I'm like, look, I guarantee you one of our guys is going to smoke all your guys and win it. Guaranteed. 
Asher won it. Yeah. I'm like, there's no, like, I, you see the, how these guys surf these waves. It's like, yeah. there's no shot, like, this guy from wherever he's going to be. surf this place good. Too. Yeah. yeah. Like, it does, crazy. It's not very different than Jacksonville Beach or yeah. any of those, yeah. like, you know, Fernandina or whatever. Like, East Coast Shore Pound, it translates. And you won our contest twice. Sure. Yeah, well, and and then yeah, twice after. before that <laughs> and, then and once yeah, after. Go through like historical unsound events, like people that came, like of good years where the waves were well, super the, good. The names we had. Uh, Everyone, John John. John John was here multiple times. Who else? Uh, John John, Chris Ward, uh, Shay Lopez. Corey was been around. Um, Keanu was seen. Kaloe. Um, Fred Patacia. Patacia was here. Uh, so it, it works hand in hand, you know. But uh, definitely Quick Pro was crazy, too. That was another intense time for New York surfing as yeah, far as... You want to give us that story for... I mean, how was... It's from, like, concept to execution. Like, how were you guys involved with that? We just they, always... The unsound is like a test you know, pilot for it, right? Yeah. Andy Ryan worked there, and we always were, Andy, let's do a big event with Quicksilver. Let's do a big event with Quicksilver. And we always thought, QS, let's do... Like, yeah. We could definitely do a uh, six-star, and people would be stoked on it. So yeah. that was our plan. Yeah, you're you're always hunting for sponsors. So we, every year we, wrestle up whoever was on board, and, and uh, our friend Andy worked at Quicksilver, so we're like pitching every year. Yo, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. Finally, 2010, he's like, I think we're gonna do it. And she came back to us, probably gonna be like a four or six star kind of thing, and then like literally like a week later or something, he's like, yo, he's like these guys coming into town let's meet so we met them out to dinner at this freaking place they're like hey we're gonna do a uh, ct a million yeah. bucks yeah. we're like uh okay okay so it's like, kind of pretty much like you took, our, took over our permit and yeah. then but they were like you were absolutely this is your you guys started this whole thing we want to make sure that you are 100 percent part of this yeah yeah, yeah. no we, they were very, we were very involved we were lucky to be very involved they even gave us we were the, the main sponsor of the trials which is yeah. like kind of a feather in our cap because I don't think any other shop in the world has ever been like no. a trial sponsor for a so CT sick. event especially a million dollar CT it kind of got like towards like as it went on it got like I think even too big for the people and quick to kind of like really handle like they, they envisioned oh, it one way yeah. and it just it mushroomed out of control but um, I think that just like fully took the cap off the bottle yeah. kind of thing meaning like it was, it, boost, it, people yeah. kind of thought that the waves are good and surf could be good and surfers could be good and this and that that was like all right we now we know it can be yeah so they got really good surf in numerous days too it wasn't just like a one day thing they got like and when you get that top tier of industry and surfers and everyone all seeing you know i don't say as good as it can get but it very good then it goes a long way to like you know legitimizing the the feeling that we knew or what we knew all along so yeah, I mean, I think, I forget, and were you guys part of that, like, research that that uh, Kevin did? Was it Kevin that did the whole, like, report on when the, like, every year the window For the quick, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. He was on the phone with him all the time. So, I, yeah, I was lucky Brooks enough to talk too. to him quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, Rod Brooks, actually, that's his name, right? Rod Brooks, the old guy from Quicksilver? He was, like, the team. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His son uh, was Troy. Yeah, Rod Brooks. Yeah, he came. He was yeah. like 65 years old. Flew here from Australia just to watch oh, the yeah, waves, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, you know, and see the surf. Like we before like, the contest, he just wanted to yeah, come. He, he yeah, they sent the him potential. here to kind of like look at the sites and this yeah. potential sites yeah. and everything like that. Like the Pacific was really a potential site. That's why. Oh, the day you came here too was, was pumping. Pretty, was pumping. Just, pumping. Really? Yeah, just pumping. Like, because like, out of the blue, it rolled up and it's like these overwedged like French barreling everywhere though, like crazy. 
And he, he was like 100 percent spinning everywhere too. I guess, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I was Bob lucky was enough to too, talk to Bob Sean though. I, I got like, I guess they tasked me with like um, finding photos of like good days in and around that time, and then uh, sent them to Sean with the dates. And then he called me on a number of occasions, and we kind of like he's like, oh, when was this? Where was this? And then you know, I just talked to him for a couple hours before he died. It was like mm. pretty, you know, but like pretty lucky, insane for us too. We had contest for so many years and Strider happened to be you know he works with Quicksilver but he had been to our event numerous times on his own just for like fashion week whatever the hell he was here for yeah any excuse for but when it was time like anywhere. Quicksilver board meetings where we can do the contest he was all about it so it happened to be like you know just being involved in surfing it just let the opportunities come that way you know what I mean that's a lot of like what lucky for us has happened by putting in the groundwork first you yeah. know Like, what are these some of these surf spots or surf places that, that you covered in this episode or ones that really are important for our listeners to be familiar with? To me, I feel like Rockaway is the, like, pinnacle of what people think of as, like, New York City surfing. And we got to go and cruise around Rockaway with Colohandino and his crew from Reckless Isolation when they were premiering their film at the Rockaway Hotel. And that experience was a trip for me because I hadn't seen the Rockaway since it had opened a few years ago. And... It's a gorgeous, like, luxury hotel on the beach with a beautiful space to show films. Insane views, by the way. Yeah, it's <laughs> like It's nuts. Such a great place to show a surf movie. And they were blown away by it. Now, I think Kolohe had come here for the Unsound Contest a few years back. Maybe it was probably even... He won it. Is that right? He yeah, won he won it, I believe. Yeah. I have to figure out what year that was. But yes, Kolohe was saying that he'd only been here for that contest. And... You could tell he was like really into the scene. He loved that he had gotten to take a ferry from Rockaway into the city, cruise around lower Manhattan, and then be back in the water at one o'clock in the afternoon. I think a lot of people have this preconceived notion that being a surfer in New York is like it's like a novelty that you think of people like going through the subway with their board and trying to get to the beach. But I've sat in traffic in on the 405 for three times as long as I've sat on the A train waiting for a transfer <laughs> from Broad Channel or something. Uh, and, or what is it, Jamaica? What is this? Yeah, Broad, is Channel. Broad Channel. Yeah, See, yeah, I still yeah. remember yeah. my you routes. You got it, you got it. And yeah, I think that it, it's something that it's still interesting to people that it's a thing, that are New York City surfers. And we got to go see Chris Gentile's new shop, the new Pilgrim location, and... For me, that was Chris in the Mullis shop over on River Street. The, that like original scene was my first introduction to New York surfing. Let's give our listeners like a bit of a background here mm -hmm. on that, because because that was a very important time in New York surfing, I think. And he opened a store, Mollusk Surf Shop on River Street. It was small, and it was 2007, and no one even thought like you could really do a surf shop in that area in Brooklyn, particularly Williamsburg at that time. Yeah, I remember I got to see the shop about a few weeks after it first opened on my first trip to New York City. And I remember pulling up, it's on a dead-end street in the middle of Williamsburg, pre-capital like W Williamsburg, the way that people think of it now. Like It was yeah. still, to my Flor young Floridian eyes, I was like, this is what I imagined like raw Brooklyn looking like. It was like oil silos that had been abandoned <laughs> and janky skate ramps that they'd wedged up against this, the curb and this little corner shop that looked out on the East River. And I was like, 
this is heaven. This is paradise. If you live in New York, this is like the coolest street corner on the planet. I think that experience shaped how I perceived what's possible through a surf community and how it can bring energy into a scene and expose people to new ideas and create like a real capital C community. And I think that's really coalesced in Brooklyn around what Chris is and those and Chris and Mike and everyone that felt a part of that scene really brought to it and has carried it to what it is today to see his new shop. The place is like a cathedral to yeah. surfing. It's one of the most beautiful surf shops on the planet. It has to be. You know, Chris's story is really interesting. And uh, for our listeners, you know, we have a really much larger expanded upon interview with Chris that uh, isn't in no contest that uh, I want you to hear. It's really, really interesting. And, and Chris is a, a really fascinating character in New York surfing. That I think you're really going to really enjoy listening to. I moved here to pursue my career as a visual artist um, and uh, left a full-time teaching job um, at a university in Virginia to, to, to do that. Um, I was pretty young, so I felt like I needed to come here and um, be a part of a dialogue with other artists and writers and other people making things. It was the best decision I think I've ever made. Um, and I fell right into the lap of a lot of really special people when I came here. Um, so yeah, it, it, made it, it made that transition a lot easier, but still a lot of humbling moments that, that continue. <laughs> it's a very humbling place. Um, and uh, it is what you make of it, too. You know, it can gobble you up and spit you out. You know, I think you have to come here and fully embrace a capacity to be embarrassed, to uh, quote Franz Klein, you know, if you're going to be great. You have to embrace the capacity to be embarrassed. I mean, the open, opening our first little thing here was really uh, a joy. It wasn't really a risk. I kind of felt like there was very little risk in it um, because uh, our rent was $750 a month. <laughs> and we were in a post-industrial wasteland with fuel oil storage tanks across the street. The nearest retail was probably a 20-minute walk away. We had a good feeling that there was a number of surfers here that would support it so it could survive. What we didn't realize is we underestimated how many surfers there were in New York that would want to come out and support what we were doing. We learned a lot in, that, in, those, in those few years. Um, it was really, it was like sort of the golden era of this neighborhood too. You know, it was when you could still be an artist and have a studio here and you know, do freelance work and to support your, your, your uh, you know, art or music or creative endeavor that you have moved here for. North Williamsburg is, it was a post-industrial wasteland. It was a bunch of warehouses, uh, light manufacturing, and there wasn't a, like a real community of, of, of or ethnic community uh, uh, living here. Um, there was a lot of Domino Sugar Factory you know, workers, little pockets of, of, of in the neighborhood, but for the most part, it was really um, like a lot of different kinds of people sort of mixed in here and, and a lot of raw open spaces that had been taken over by artists. Uh, there was a lot of artists run galleries. There was a lot of artists run, um, you know, performance spaces, uh, a lot of DIY shit um, everywhere, like buildings that may or may not have been, you know, really habitable, but, you know, people were making things work and they were building building their own lives out of very little and it was super inspiring to be around it was pretty fucking special you know it wasn't about 
performance or competition or the industry. It was like this other sort of like undercurrent um, that felt more like the world that I came from back in the 80s, like skateboarding, punk rock, and hardcore, felt like, you know, this undercurrent that was not very visible that, you know, you felt special to be, you know, involved with. I think my inspiration was really like the mom and pops up and down the coast of California in the, in the 60s and 70s. I never didn't move to New York to have a brand, and I didn't move to New York to have a fucking surf shop. That's like the last thing on my mind. It really just happened, and I think that's kind of one of the beautiful things about New York. It's the one thing that I think is the, the driving force behind everything that we do is craft. That sort of like combination of skill and intellect and, and like curiosity, like all kind of coalescing. Um, I just feel like you, we belong here. When I, when I opened that store, I wasn't relying on it for income. You know, it wasn't something I even counted on for it. I was doing other things to um, stay alive and you know, but it was thoroughly interesting, super weird, and like brought together people from all over the place. And I think one of the biggest things that happened to me in my life is like having that situation happen where like we built this thing and people came to it, like magnetized. And, and I got the benefit of getting to know all of them. And, you know, they became friends. You were there. I mean, I mean, that's how I know you, you know, like I, uh, some of the best people in the world that I know come from that moment in time. Um, I'm really grateful for it. All I did was rent a $750 a month fucking shitty little space on the corner of an old steam valve factory. There were, there were surf shops in Brooklyn and in Queens, like not Rockaway Queens, but Queens, like in the early 60s. Um, really? A lot of them were like dive shops that like started buying boards with, the, uh, with like the surf craze. I have an archive of the first East Coast surfing magazines called Atlantic Surfing of every, every issue. Um, it was, they were published by these two friends, uh, Paul Chappie and, and John Gunderson, I believe are their, their names. Um, and they published the magazine when they were like 18, 19 years old out of their bedroom in, in uh, Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. No way. So the first East Coast surf magazine was published in, by two kids from Brooklyn, in Brooklyn. The, 15 mile distance between us and Rockaway it can take you two and a half hours sometimes if you get unlucky on the, yeah. on the Bell Parkway or whatever. Um, so uh, it's, it's challenging to travel out and into the city for sure. Um, but um, no one lives in New York City to be a surfer. You don't. No one moves here to be a surfer. You move here to pursue your life and to pursue all these other passions that you have. And surfing is this thing that gives you a moment to be in nature, to you know, be alone, be unplugged. Um, and it's really meaningful to people here who surf. Um, that's what's beautiful about it. There's probably more people learning to surf in their um, later years, you know, in their 30s, 40s, and 50s than probably anywhere in the, in the world. Imagine trying to learn that when you're 50 years old. So the person that has the ability and the humility to stick that out and keep doing it and find joy in getting smashed and getting their head broken open by their board by putting on five mil shit and surfing when it's snowing out and like, wind's blowing 20 miles an hour and it's 19 degrees out. Like, you know, that is, that is a special human being. Um, and what they bring into the water is a joy that, you know, people lose that I think when they when they become jaded and live in wave rich places listeners when you do come through New York 
it's necessary to go stop at Pilgrim. If you're a surfer, you need to go by there and check out some beautiful boards, some great clothing, and uh, friendly people, too. He's got a great staff there, which you did interview, actually. Yeah, well. that's what I was just going to say is Chris has always had the most incredible, and I'm not saying this just because I work there, <laughs> but I feel like Chris has always been a host to all these great characters that have wanted to come and work at the shop that have all these other things going on in their lives. Like, it's always been the shop that took in misfits from wherever they were if they were interested in creativity and culture and surfing. And if they could tolerate Chris's wildly eclectic vinyl collection. And <laughs> it's so nice walking into that shop and talking to that whole crew. And we got to do a profile on Joni Capetta. Is that how you say? Yeah. yeah. Is that how you say Joni's last name? Yeah. And Benny's Club, which I'll let Joni explain it. To see how Chris has created a space that everyone feels comfortable using as their own platform and bringing their own communities into the shop and being open to whatever that is. To me, those are the ingredients and like the dynamic for a surf shop to feel like a real like center of the surf scene in any town. And yeah, I'm really proud of how they, their version of surf culture through that shop to me is a blueprint for a real type of community surf scene. You know, and I think Chris is a real big proponent and supporter of Joni and, and all the work that they are doing. I, I think we'll just let Chris introduce you to Joni here. Joni uh, started a um, queer surf club here in New York called Benny's club with um, their friend uh, Momo and Momo and Joni both worked for us. They created this wonderful surf club that basically invited the queer community in New York to surf, introduce, in, introducing that community to surfing, uh, and giving people a safe place uh, and a welcoming kind of introduction to it. Surfing's pretty fucking macho and laden with bravado false bravado, all this bullshit. Uh, it's really like kind of goofy um, and very homophobic. Um, but in New York, we've got, you know, uh, the opportunity and a lot of openness to like allow things like that to, to grow. Um, you know, and everyone in the community supports it and loves it. My name is Joni. I'm from sort of San Diego, sort of out here. And my pronouns are they and them. And Benny's Club, I co-founded with my friend Momo during the summer of 2020. It was a thing that I think we'd both been thinking about kind of separately um, for a while, both being surfers and both feeling um, not very at home in surfing in a lot of ways. Surfing is a very attractive thing, I think, for everybody. And I, over the years, a lot of my queer friends had always been asking me to like teach them how to surf. New York is the best environment for that community. There's people doing all kinds of things, living all kinds of lives here, and they all have the option to take the train to the beach. It's, I think the only city in the country you can do that, like really like take the train to a surf spot any time of day. Um, so yeah, the lineups are diverse separate from Benny's Club. It's half a joke and it's not a joke where like, New York needs Benny's Club less than anywhere else in the country. What we have here is really special. I mean, 
yeah, the the surfing in Southern California in particular, I think, is a it has a there's an edge to it. I think people are. It seems worse now. Like I go home and it, people seem to be a little more on edge than they were growing up. But yeah, there's a sense of scarcity. There's a sense of um, a hierarchy that maybe is starting to dissolve more so than it was before. Um, I mean, you're, you have a place where population is expanded, and you also have a place where um, coastal access has been like very closely guarded and gate kept um, for certain communities, and you have people being priced out of their houses that they grew up in, that their parents grew up in, things like that, like all happening at the same time. And surfing is this place where, like, in theory, they're going to like heal and chill and like relax and rejuvenate, but really they're just like bringing all their baggage and yeah. you can feel it. Surfing is never, I don't think, is, is very rarely here the thing that people organize their lives around, where I think like people in California, you put a lot of pressure on surfing. It's like, that's the thing that you do. But here you're, you're creative, you're a party person, like you do other things and surfing's this, I guess much more of a hobby really. Um, not that people aren't committed to it, but it's, 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 yeah, extremely committed. I mean, it's fucking cold in the winter, but it's one of many things that they do, and that's also part of why it's such an interesting community. They've got, everyone's got things going on. We are a queer and POC-centered surf collective in New York City, and we host community surf meetups. Um, we do some lessons, not very much. We host a Slack channel where people can ask for rides, say they're going surfing, give a little conditions report, send memes, whatever, random stuff. We also do a little bit of educational stuff, host film screenings and um, do some limited like beach cleanup things, but we're really kind of a loose group of people who surf and are queer and or people of color. The first one is like, Save it with the homophobic insults. We did, a, we did an event in Los Angeles last weekend and with Queer Surf and Color of the Water and Brown Girl Surf. And there was a lot of older queer surfers who had just been surfing like really low key, kind of like keeping to themselves for 20 years, 30 years. And um, yeah, they, it's cool to see someone feel comfortable in a way that they didn't maybe before. Yeah, their um, entire surfing life whole surfing life. Some of my favorite, some of my favorite moments are, yeah, people who like really have had successful surfing lives and are like, finally they feel like they can be them whole self, their whole self. Yeah. If you see someone who's like outwardly queer, a person of color in surfing, it's very likely that they're learning. If somebody takes a wave and they're smiling ear to ear and you say, that was a sick one, like yeah. all of a sudden you feel welcome. What would be your dream for the growth of it? Like what would be like, if you could, if you could imagine like a utopian future, Oh, that we just don't need it. That we don't have it. Like, I want Benny's Club to just, like, dissolve because it feels redundant to invite queer people and people of color into the water. I want to plug La Rubea. Um, they're based here in the Rockways. They do free surf lessons for local kids um, in the Rockways, which, as you know, is, um, well, I don't know about predominantly anymore. Things are definitely changing, but there's a lot of um, Section 8 housing and, and kind of immigrant communities, most, a lot from the Caribbean, um, who are around there. 
It's also a place with like an extremely high rate of drowning because there's no public pool, low swim literacy, and so they're just doing, they do surf lessons and they, they're doing some political advocacy to get public pools built and they just, they do amazing work. Um, a lot of us volunteer to teach lessons with the kids and we're very like close. I had some friends from San Diego who moved here, who lived here for a few years and we had plans to surf and they just like, first time, I've known these people for 15 years. First time ever that they slept through their alarm. And I was like, congratulations, like you're a New Yorker now. <laughs> you were out too late, you had too much fun, you didn't want to go home. What would you, how would you describe the shop's role in this community? Oh yeah, program's super funny. I have like a little mental catalog of all the like types of people that come here a lot. It's the only surf shop in Brooklyn, so that's like an important community function get your wax, your wetsuit. There's the cultural things like the, we did like the Afro surf book launch and there's film screenings and that like very normal California surf shop thing that people don't really think of here. Yeah, and also a place to get, also like a place to gather and talk surfing or whatever. Like we have shop groms. They look different than they do in California, but like, you know, there's like people that just come and hang out for an hour or two or three or whatever. Um, and and then there and there's like the surfboards, which are um, a te um, this rack is a testament to craft, right, and to like an artisan kind of way of thinking about surfing. It's a vision of surf. It's a the things that that Chris values in surfing, and the things that Pilgrim in turn values, is a vision of surfing that's like of expression and um, care and soul and that's really cool to be a part of. And then there's like the fashion thing, like people come in here, like they know the clothes. They don't know why there are surfboards on the wall. They're like, they're here for the pants, um, which is like crazy too. And you also had the opportunity to speak to an incredible writer too, who has written for the New York Times she also was like a founding editor at Vibe magazine as well, and also can speak to a lot of like the diversity that's happened in the lineup in Rockaway, Diane Cardwell. How was that meeting her? Diane was so wonderful to speak with and to cruise around Rockaway with. She's lived out here for a few years, and her book about learning how to surf as an adult and a black woman, which is, I think, is it titled Rockaway? Yeah, Rockaway, so yeah. Headlong into a new life. It had just got an option for a film that they were making, for a proper Hollywood film. And... Kerry Washington. Is that right? Way. Yeah, optioned it. <laughs> Kerry Washington optioned it. And it was, she's just such an, an interesting thinker and had done such incredible research into the histories of sort of African connections to surf culture and the history of just beach culture in general in Rockaway from a full standpoint coming from that perspective, it gave me a completely new prism to look at Rockaway through that has made me appreciate Rockaway even more for what it is as far as it being for sure the most diverse surf community on the planet as far as I'm concerned. And you were really lucky. You got to spend an afternoon with Diane and I really, really loved your conversation that you had with her. And, and for our listeners, we'll just go right into it here. Here's Diane Cardwell with Ashton. Enjoy. So that was 
so fascinating yeah. and great. So they came to me actually with that idea. Oh, really? Right. So there's a, a one of the one of the editors on the sports desk uh -huh. is a surfer, and she comes out here. And so she she knew me, and they were talking about this idea. And she's like, "Well, you have to you have to call Diane Cardwell for that." <laughs> we have a person for that. <laughs> we have someone for that. So um, so yeah. So I ended up. Uh, so that's how that happened. And then you know I knew some of that history, but I didn't know all of it. Yeah. Um, and that. So it was just fascinating to, to learn it and, and also to kind of do this deep dive into going back all the way to Africa and you know African traditions of wave riding um, and, and just how rich and deep that connection is, even though in this country, you know, we've gotten kind of severed from those connections. But, but the other thing that was really fascinating about that story was, you know, I had watched yeah. things change in Rockaway, yeah. right, because of the work of, like, you know, East Coast Black Surfing Association, La Rubea, these organizations that are, you know, getting people, yeah. getting kids of color out into the water. Um, especially this kind of middle section yeah. of rock of the peninsula where it's it's probably the most integrated. It's still probably majority minority, but yeah. it is much more. It's it's pretty fairly integrated in terms of race, ethnicity, class. Um, it's incredible mix, and that's part of it's part of what I love about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you would expect the water to look like the neighborhood, <laughs> and only recently has yeah. that come true. Yeah. What do you think was the, was the what, were, what were the barriers to entry before? Was it just sort of like? I think it's exposure. Yeah. You know, I just think, you know, part of it, I was talking to, to one of the young women who surfs with La Rubea, and she was saying, you know, she grew up in Edgemere, mm -hmm. right, in, in this huge public housing development that is a really short walk to the beach. Yeah. But she's like, you know, we didn't surf, right? We didn't swim. She didn't even know how to swim, but had got exposed through like a, a lesson with locals that was part of a program that her, they were doing at her high school. And yeah. she just loved it. And so that's now become her life. But, you know, I think there is a, a feeling among many African Americans that surfing the ocean swimming is not for them yeah. right it's not what it's not what we do yeah. um, that was something that came up in my interviews a lot yeah. but and also you know we have you know we haven't been had as much access to coastal living yeah. to swimming lessons to water safety to all of those yeah. things and you know every year you see these kids who drown and they're overwhelmingly, well, people, not just kids, but people of color. And yeah. so that reinforces this idea that, that swimming and the ocean are dangerous and yeah. they're not places that we should go. So there is, there is a, a, an unfortunate and rich history of you know, legalized segregation and you know, redlining so that blacks couldn't get mortgages in certain neighborhoods, right? So, so there has been a lot of different, well, there have been a lot of different socioeconomic political forces and policies that have essentially kept black people away from the ocean. Yeah. Um, and that over generations then becomes a kind of self-fulfilling thing, right? Like your father didn't surf, 
your father didn't swim, so that is not part of you know, the, the ether that you breathe in the yeah. way that it is for so many other families. I guess I was surprised to see how much of a kind of ecosystem and community that's developed globally around encouraging people of African descent to surf, right? Whether it's the BSA either in California or here, black girls surf, um, the Jamnesia in, in Jamaica, and, and you know, Gigi Lucas in yeah. Jacksonville. So there are, and these people and groups are working with each other and talking with each other and kind of seeding something that I think will eventually, you know, I think eventually we'll see, you know, black surfers at the highest levels of competition. I don't, you would have a better sense of when that'll be than I would. Yeah. But eventually, I think, you know, that's bound to happen. I, yeah. You want to sort of just give us, like, your sort of take from north to south? If you were, like, if you were, like, giving people, like, the sort of breakdown of Rockaway. Okay. Just imagine you're looking at a map and just, just yeah. Right. It'd be easier if I were looking at a map, but anyway. <laughs> So, so even though we call it uptown and downtown, it's actually west to east, east to west. So, um, downtown Rockaway, Far Rockaway, Edgemere, um, Wavecrest, those neighborhoods—they really like butt up right against Nassau County, and that's where you find a lot of the larger housing developments. Some are middle class, and some are public housing. And Far Rockaway, Edgemere, those communities have been, you know, kind of down at the heels for a long time. I mean, part of that is the history of how it developed. That's where um, a lot of people were warehoused from, who had been displaced from other so-called slums um, yeah. under the Robert Moses Slum Clearance Program. Um, and I don't, I don't know that, the ins and outs of that history and why those decisions were made, but there certainly was a sense here that people were simply pushed to as far as they could be pushed. And so there have not been a lot of great services down there, not a lot of investment, um, although that's changing. As you come further uptown or west, I guess next would be, Ed, would be Arvern. And that area is been pretty, has been pretty well completely redeveloped in the last, I don't know, when was it was created as an urban renewal area in the 60s, I think, and they're finally finishing it now. <laughs> um, uh -huh. like when I first started coming out of that's where I started learning, and that area was just blighted, right? There were, the traffic lights were covered in black plastic, there were just mounds of dirt, things that had been cleared for construction, but no construction had happened. Yeah. Um, just like derelict spaces. Completely derelict spaces. There were um, some old timers who talked about like, you know, back in the bad old days, you would see like rabbits and um, wild packs of dogs. <laughs> like one time or like we saw this guy walking around with a shotgun, like yeah. hunting. So, <laughs> um, but you know, those were the days when like, I guess, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when there was, you know, you would see like car wrecks on yeah. the beach, there were yeah. spent needles in the parking lot, you know, you would, like if you were two people, you would have to get out of your wetsuit one at a time because you don't want to be incapacitated in case somebody comes by. I mean, it was a really, yeah. surfing was a true outlaw 
thing happening out here. Um, but now Arverns, you know, coming up in the world, the, I mean, again, the prices, real estate prices are insane um, compared to what they once were. But, you know, there are more amenities. There's a cute little coffee shop. There's a good barbecue joint. Um, and then above that is Rockaway Beach, where I live. And that is very, um, that's sort of probably the most hipstery area where you've got a lot of creative types. I mean, it's still very working class. You know, I've got plumbers and firefighters and um, teachers and nurses and, and artists and sculptors and woodworkers and a lot. There's a lot of, um, there's a very strong maker yeah. community here. And so there are, you know, the, well, I guess I should mention the brewery, right, which is in Arvern. They do, they often do a maker's market. And it's just amazing to see, like, what, yeah. what people in this community can make. Um, and then, you know, this is, what is this? This is Rockaway Park, yeah. right? And so this, you have, like, these big kind of middle-class subsidized housing. I think a lot of them, I don't know that all of them are, but a lot of them are Mitchell Lama. Mm -hmm. And so that's a way that, you know, your teacher or firefighter could have a nice apartment, you know, on the water. Um, those, I think, were probably 60s, 70s developments. I'm not really, not clear on that. Um, and then going uptown, uh, further west, you come to Bell Harbor and Neponset and Breezy and um, Roxbury on the Bay Side. And those, so those communities were always built as like suburban style middle class communities. There were deed covenants and you know all sorts of restrictions and but those um, those were planned yeah. as nice communities yeah. as opposed to much of this part which used to be very honky tonk and rough and tumble and you know there was a steeplechase and um, um, movie houses and rides. Playland was in the 90s so there's, there's always been this kind of, I don't know, honky-tonk vibe. Yeah. And also, like, we are here to party and have a good time, right? <laughs> Little summer shacks, bungalow colonies, tent colonies, whereas Uptown was developed much more as a suburban kind of family style. And so, and Breezy is a, is a private gated community yeah. that you cannot go onto the beach unless you're with somebody, you're in yeah. there already. So that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. Breezy certainly is that kind of generation after generation of the same families with the same houses. But yeah, that's a that's pretty Irish up there. Bell Harbor is feels a little more mixed. It's it's kind of a mix of I think Irish and Italian and Jewish. Um, you know, Far Rockaway has a big Hasidic population. There seem to be some pockets of Russians and Poles, right? Like they're the Mitchell Lama building right near me is, has a, is very Polish to the point where our, um, our supermarket now has like this incredible selection of Polish smoked meats. <laughs> so if you want a really good sausage and cheese, yeah. head cheese, <laughs> you can go to my key food. <laughs> I think if you go, like if you go up to Far Rockaway, um, like right before you get to that Atlantic beach, I guess that, I think that's Atlantic Beach Pier, but there's like a little inlet and there are always these groups in the summer, 
there are always these groups of what I think are Russian ladies, mm -hmm. you know, in bathing caps and bathing suits, just floating, mm -hmm. just like, you know, floating with the tides. So, so I, I feel like there's still a little bit of that. And, yeah. you know, you still have some of the ethnic stores, right? There's a Polish, um, like, sort of pork store on 116. So you still, there's, there's enough around, but yeah, it is not, it's not quite what it used to be. So, so surfing was illegal for a long time, and then there, they, they, what year was it? I think in the 60s, for like one year, they legalized it, because the guy who owns Borders, mm -hmm. Steve, yeah. was a member of the Rockaway Beach Surf Club. I can't remember whether it's Surf or Surfing Club. And he and a group of kids, like they were surfing, and so they went down to City Hall and they met with the Parks Commissioner. Yeah. And they got him, he agreed, and they, they gave them a surfing beach. Look at like, they gave them two or three. I have the press release, I can't remember exactly where. <laughs> but so for like one glorious year, it was legal. And, yeah. then, and then it became illegal again. And then, but what waves were, it was Beach 90th Street, or was it? There was something up around 123rd. Yeah. There was something around 123rd historically, right? So the old 123rd here, and then um, so 90th was the first legal one, and then they they did 67, and then every once in a, and so then every year, like the past couple years, they've given us one more somewhere <laughs> up here. It's usually so sometimes it's 108, sometimes it's 110, sometimes it's 102. You know, I. But I bet they do it here, though, because you know anybody staying here is going to want to go out and surf. I can't think of anywhere where you'd see more, whatever you want to call them, categories represented in the lineup than there. Poor, rich, white, black. Every bit of the spectrum is represented in New York surfing today. And that's really unique. And the fact that everyone feels so comfortable and proud of that. It's really cool. And I'll say to this, it's, it is definitely one of the most diverse lineups I've ever surfed in, but also like everyone's attitude tends to be somewhat positive in the water. And there's very rarely a whole lot of like angst and, and grumblings from people. And I think one of the reasons is because New York is, is such a diverse place, you don't know who you could be getting into an argument with in the lineup. Because I don't know if this is going to be a cop or a fireman or anyone that might help me in the future or might be a cool person that I might meet on land. Yeah, I think that the <laughs> only place that comes close as far as like diversity would be Malibu. And the same thing goes there where you're like, oh, you never know who you're dropping in on. But that's because they're worried that it's like a Hollywood agent. Yeah. In New York, you're worried that it's going to be the guy that pulls you over. Yeah. <laughs> or who, like, breaks down your door if a fire happens, yeah. you know? I do think that Rockaway and Long Island in general has always had one of the coolest, like, working-class civil servant cultures of surfing. I've never Definitely. known a place where there's more firefighters and, and police and teachers and nurses. Everyone out here, I feel, does some sort of public service job. So let's break down the local economics of surfing in New York. New York is definitely a somewhat cost prohibitive place to visit if 
you are trying to travel and surf on a budget, it's the best place on the planet to have a friend with a couch. Yes. And which I'm always very thankful for the myriad friends who let me crash when I come through. But yeah, if you're coming to New York, I think you really, you can choose and really benefit either way from staying in the city and doing strike missions out to surf or coming and staying in Rockaway for a few days and just getting a feel for what it's like to be in that scene for a little bit. Being able to go on a surf trip to New York City and then spend a few days bombing from Rockaway out to Montauk to me is something that every like culturally interested serious surfer should do. It's such a unique experience and there's so many different types of waves that you can score if you come here the right time of year. I always encourage people to suck it up and go during the winter because it's the only place I can think of that time of year that you can go and get barreled by yourself on a pretty cheap domestic flight. New York is unique in that, like, depending on what season you come, you could need pretty much every wetsuit that you own. From this time of year right now, it's warm, starts to cool off quick. You go from a spring suit into a full suit in a matter of two weeks, and then you're in a four, three a month later. So it can get expensive as far as gear goes. So what sort of resources should people, if they want to surf here, what should they, where should they go? Where can they go to get information? Coming to New York, I would walk straight into Unsound or Pilgrim and start picking somebody's brain. If you need gear, they have anything you can need as far as wetsuits, booties. Even through the scarcity of the pandemic, I think most of those guys had a full stock of whatever they could find from all the brands mm-hmm. as far as wetsuit, booties, and gloves. And yeah, invest in multiple wetsuits if you have the luxury of doing so because from I would say November until April putting on a cold wetsuit is usually the biggest barrier to entry to getting in the water. I think that people have a misconception that when the water is super cold that it is miserable but with modern wetsuits it's surprisingly very tolerable and almost warm most of the time if you have a dry wetsuit to put on so that the point A to point B parking lot to water situation doesn't freeze you out before you get moving. (laughs) And you can also go to Scoot and Surf, which has surf school and they can always provide information. Local Surf as well as another one in Rockway, which is great to go check out if you want information. You could go look at those two places. And then of course, yeah, there's all, there's a whole bunch of surf shops actually in New York you can check out and get all the information that you want. And then, um, yeah, I enjoyed this episode very much, Ashton. Be not just saying it because I'm featured in it and I'm happy to be a <laughs> New York surfer, but I feel like it, it really captured a good essence of the place and who the characters are. And honestly, like you said, you could make an episode a week and still find something new on it. So it's awesome. And I love this new direction that you've taken no contest in and i am looking forward to the next episodes and discussing them with you so listeners stay tuned because we're going to have more episodes as they launch so please stick around and follow us and where can they find no contest off tour so the show premieres september 29th on red bull tv and on youtube it will be released in three episode chunks with the second three being released in november and Yeah, we're just finishing filming the last episode six and the first three really excited to share with everybody. So stick around to find out where we go next for no contest off tour. And I hope you enjoy this new podcast that accompanies it. Yeah, thanks for doing this, Tyler. This is killer. Stoked, Ashton. Thank you. And for all listeners, we'll catch you on down the line. 
Oh, fuck. <laughs> this sets off a lot of fucking debates and lots of lights and I'm getting a lot of text after this if you, put, if you choose to publish it, but. Um, okay, best square pie, uh, um, uh, LMB Spumoni Gardens. Yeah, for sure, that's Brooklyn, in my opinion. Uh, best grandma slice is uh, best pizza. My boy Frank. I think best pizza might be my favorite personal pizzeria in all of, all of New York. Lindustry in our neighborhood is unfucking believable. Uh, New Park, um, you know, out in Howard Beach on the way back from Rockaway, fucking incredible. Uh, holy shit, man! Uh, Ignacio's um, down. Our, our man Lewis, who's a great customer, comes in all the time. What a character, man! His place down in, in, in uh, Dumbo is great. Um, Joe's, you know, uh, in the West Village, fucking can't, you know. Institution, oh boy, who, oh my God, man, wait a minute, ooh, 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 ooh. The Faras, you know, um, rest in peace, Dominic, he just passed away, he was, he was amazing, that old man would pull a fucking 300 degree, like, metal tray with a pizza on it out of the fucking oven with his bare hands, just, <laughs> you know, cut it himself, chop the fucking basil over the top, line of people out the door, amazing. Yeah, scissor. Um, scissor technique is local. Oh, dude, it's the Defaro's is the shit. A lot of people would say Defaro's is the, the best pizza in New York. Um, it's definitely top top five. Um, who am I forgetting? Uh, oh my God, there's just there's just so many there's so many great pizzerias here. I mean, you, in fact, like if you try to open up, you can't you can't have a bad pizzeria in New York. You'll fucking fail. It'll go away. I mean, Vinny's on, on Bedford is classic. Remember Vinny's? It's like a little like punk, punk rock kind of like pizzeria. I brought him by the Charleston too. Oh, the Charleston's classic. Oh, it's cool. Yeah. Well, the worst, best thing ever.